0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today for episode two, my guest is golf architect Bobby Weed. Bobby lives and works out of Ponte Vedra, Florida. He got a start working construction crews for Pete Dye, then worked his way up to become the lead designer for the PGA Tour. In 1994, he started his own design build business, and today, along with Chris Monte, his business partner, he specializes in building strategic, highly detailed courses that emphasize handcrafted features and short game creativity. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, we were originally scheduled to talk a couple weeks ago, and then Hurricane Irma roared up through Florida and did some damage, and uh, so now we're rescheduled. But you mentioned that uh, it did some damage to the fish camp. So, is, is the fish camp is that where you live, or is that another recreation? No, property that
1: separate. You I live in I live in Panavedra, and um, I've got a fish camp between Ponte Vedra, to actually just north of St. Augustine, off the Intracoastal Waterway. We've got a, a Private fish camp down there, and um, really great piece of property. And I ultimately moved my offices down there about I don't know four or five years ago. I was I used to take clients down there on occasion, and everybody just fell in love with the place. And uh, I was like, you know, I'm not sure why I'm paying all this rent for office space when I take everybody to my fish camp, and I got plenty of room down there, and everybody loves it. Uh, maybe i will just, and I love it. I may I just move my office down there. I've got a big I've got a big lodge down there, and and then I've got a oyster house on the right on the water and wonderful grounds overlooking the marsh. And um, so it's a it's a great place to entertain. It's a great place for you know to raise my family. Just kind of move my offices down there, and I've got a great little setup, and it's it's been really good. My office is really in the field, you know, always wherever I'm working, but when I am home, I need a home base, and so that affords me a, a great opportunity to to both enjoy being at, my, at our fish camp and also, um, you know, being a home base for work.
0: How would you compare your passion for fishing with your passion for golf? <laughs>
1: well, I haven't played golf in about nine weeks. I've had a couple of elbow injuries, and um, but I've somehow been able to sustain a little bit of fishing. But I don't know. Uh I really don't have time to do any of what I really enjoy. Work keeps getting in the way of my fishing and my hunting and my golf. So uh but that's not all bad. Uh you just gotta find a, a balance between, you know, those fun recreational activities and work and family as well. So, um uh, it's a, it's a balance that I've had to deal with for a long time. So uh and it just kinda goes with the territory. I've pretty much gotta get on an airplane to go to work. But right now we're busy in Florida, and uh, so I'm driving. Actually, going to be burning up I-95 north and south here for the next probably three years or more, with some projects down south. So, staying out of an airplane and not having to come through Atlanta is, is not a bad thing. I, I often say I come through Atlanta so much until if you go down to Gate A-31, I got a little hibachi grill down there underneath. <laughs> underneath some of those benches down there because I frequent that airport so often. But uh, staying out of an airport is not all bad for me. You know, driving down 95 affords me some time uh, to kind of sort things out, think through some projects, uh, do a little, have some time for some design thoughts and, um, you know, get some business done on the way way back and forth. So uh, it's all good.
0: Absolutely. Uh, not to age you or to suggest you should do anything different than you're doing, but going back to the, to the fishing, is, it, do you ever see a point at some point where you just like to retire and, and move out to the fish camp full time? Because it, it, it doesn't seem like golf architects retire, you know, like the same way that a, a doctor or a contractor or a lawyer or somebody looks forward to just kind of putting walking away from the business. Uh, what, are, what are your plans? Do, do, do golf architects ever just walk away?
1: Um, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I think some of them do. It sounds like some of them do. Uh, Um, but you know, I'm kind of cut from the cloth of Pete Dye and, um, and you know, he's 92 and he, he's been able to sustain himself very well to a high level and, you know, can be as busy as he wants to be. And, you know, with me, um, I don't know, I enjoy what I do so much that I'm like, I don't know what else I would do. I mean, you can only fish and play golf and hunt so much. And you know, I'm I'm at a point right now where I honestly can say I may be enjoying what I'm doing work-wise more than I ever have because I've um, I've been able to. Uh, I'm I'm a little more selective now in my project base, and uh, very very fortunate to be to be very busy, and I've actually gone back to my roots, and um, I'm actually on equipment, shaping my features more than I have maybe ever. And um, that has just brought on a, a whole new level of fulfillment to me. Instead of, Instead of trying to sketch something out, which I can hardly draw my breath, um, and, and, or, or giving instructions to an operator, I was I was on a job recently in Central Florida, and there was a operator on the bulldozer, and I, and he could tell he had been doing it for a long time, and he was very accomplished, and uh, I just I just motioned for him to come over, and I said, you know, I said you look like you're a really good operator, and you've been doing this a long time. I said um, I said I'm not quite sure exactly what I want here and I said so if I can't convey what I want to you you can't read my mind and you can't do what I'm what I'm trying to envision I said do you mind if I just run your dozer for a little bit and then I'll let you get back on and clean it up and it didn't offend him at all uh, which which I was fearful that it might and uh, so anyway I got on the bulldozer and it seems more often than not that when I'm on a, a piece of equipment, whether it be a Traco or a Dozer or a box blade or, or whatever, it seems like my, my vision increases. What I, what I envision just kind of increases. And and what I know, you know, if I want how I want the thing to set in, or left to right or right to left, and I have a general idea of, of my bunkering. Uh, a lot of it kind of comes to you while you're on the piece of equipment. Um, that may surprise a lot of people, but I will tell you that great golf courses are built in the field, not from a set of plans. Pete Dye told me one time, he's like, you show me a golf course built from a set of plans. I'll show you a bad golf course. They have to really be shaped and molded and fashioned and rubbed on in the field. And that's what I do best because I think I learn from the best. And when you have a mentor, from a design and construction standpoint, like Pete Dye, and then coupled with some business, the business acumen of a of a Dean Beeman who who just who really took the lid off of the PGA Tour and took it to took it to the level it is today, uh, or helped set that foundation as to what it is today. I, I feel real confident. In, in what I'm doing today. And uh, I've never had more satisfaction than I'm having right now. So to retire, no, that's really not in the cards. I've been doing what I do too much and every now and then somebody even pays me. So um, that's a good thing.
0: Why so long? Uh, you mentioned you hadn't been on the bulldozer for a long time or was it just a matter of getting sidetracked with trying to drum up business? Or did was it did it have to do? With yeah,
1: them? A, yeah, probably a combination of things. Um, I had some. I've been blessed with having some really good people around me. You know, I'm I'm always trying to advance them and, and their career. If they stay with me or move on, uh, I think we, I think we owe it to our, our business to. Be a mentor to others as well. Um, I, I've been blessed with having some really, really great guys uh, with me, and 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 most of them have been with me for a very long time. And that that's that sign of that longevity, you know, uh, is an indication of of having great continuity and, and and having a lot of confidence in working together. So I just delegate it. And I was kind of jumping around from job to job, and um, I think now being a little more select and being a little more settled, and, um, you know, the business has changed so much. The business has just changed significantly in every way. I mean, you always hear about clubs and balls and shafts and technology, but our business has changed so much. The equipment we use today is different than what we used 25 years ago in many ways. The way we need to design and build golf courses has changed. Uh, It's a very exciting time, I think, to be a golf course architect because I think we control a lot about the future of the game and where it's going and and who's playing it and and how people perceive golf today and going forward. So I don't know. I just – and I enjoy – I've always enjoyed being on the job. I'm always, I've always floated out my own greens, but now I'm just reinvigorated by getting on the equipment and coming up with some of my own shaping, some of my own features, uh, changing things up a little bit. It's um, some, it's, it's really invigorating to do that again and to t- to go to the next level. And instead of having a shaper and conveying what I envision or what I'm thinking through a shaper and then having to having to massage that I get to do it from the start to finish. And um, um, I just need somebody with me to help clean up behind me a little bit because uh, I'm not the most accomplished operator, but uh, from a, from a, from a vision standpoint, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with, um, with the end product now
0: let 's go back and and pick up uh, something you just said a minute ago about how architects can be influential in the way golf is evolving. Can you elaborate on how your profession can move golf forward you know there's such a there's been such a push the last five or ten or maybe maybe longer but from organizations like the u s g a trying to quote unquote grow the game and it it always seems to me like like they're just chasing their shadow, trying to figure out a way to get more people involved how would How do you respond to that from your side of the business?
1: I think all of the Allied associations have, have things in the right perspective as far as trying to grow the game. I mean the desire is there, and the intent is all very positive. so I, I think that's, I think that's overall good. You know a lot of people are quick to throw some of these groups under the bus it's always easier to be critical than correct. So I just feel like from a golf course design standpoint, we've seen, we've seen both ends of the pendulum swing back and forth. I like where we are today from a design standpoint, we've got some new young, fresh architects that I think they're, they're doing some wonderful work and, I think golf is in a good position. The business of golf is a bit of a black eye and uh, from an operations, uh, and management standpoint. And, and that's been well, well written about Chronicles. So uh, I think I can only control what I do. And that is from a design and construction standpoint. Obviously, you know, we're not building many new golf courses right now. We're renovating a lot of golf courses, and the renovation jobs have become much larger than they were ten plus years ago. So we can influence more design on on these comprehensive renovations today and going forward. And you know, there's there, there's only so many golfers. Just like you know, there's only so many skiers, and there are only so many bowlers. Uh, there's only so many golfers, and um, while we may have overbuilt to some degree, you know the market is speaking to that today, and we do have some attrition, and it's going to continue. But there'll be a there'll be a balance sooner or later. And the game of golf is great. We've got more golf on TV today than ever before. The game is worldwide and continuing to grow in some emerging markets. So in, in many ways, you know, the game, is, the game is pretty solid on a solid foundation. And uh, what we need to do from an architecture and design standpoint is I think we have to be very conscious of making sure that we're building fun and interesting golf courses. Uh, we, can't, we can't be overly influenced by the less than 1% that you see playing the game at the highest level because it's getting more difficult to accommodate that very small number of players. Uh, But therein lies the challenge that I see so exciting because the ceiling just keeps getting higher and higher. As a beginner, you can't start out any lower than the basement. So, you know, the basement is, is set, but the ceiling just keeps getting higher, which, which spreads the range. Uh, even greater than ever before. Uh, there's never been a greater disparity between the beginner and the and the most accomplished golfer, and therein lies the challenge for us as as designers to build golf courses that can be fun and interesting to to accommodate all levels. So I, I guess that has me invigorated as much as anything at this point in my career because it's it's really a challenge, and I just absolutely love the challenge my, my partner Chris Monty and I spent countless hours debating where the game is today where we're going what can we do how can we influence design to accommodate the technological advancements and you can argue you can argue the point about well the USGA has lost control of the game but there's so many factors there's so many factors affecting the players of today
0: over the last 15 maybe 20 years the design pendulum has swung away from the you know the big product courses of the 80s and 90s into this more natural look is that you're very familiar with you know but you know these concepts of wide open fairways firm turf lots of swales and shipping areas around the greens natural look that fits right into your natural design style the kind of thing that you'd been keyed in on on early but has and you mentioned, you know, this about how design is in a really good place right now, and I think that's part of what you're talking about. Almost every new course we see built, the few that are built, kind of reflect this new paradigm of of open open ended play and a certain type of look that's not as manufactured as we used to get. But have has this move uh, changed your outlook on design, or or is it just is everything coming back to you where you've always been?
1: I think it's always evolving. I think it has to. Um, you know, a lot of these great old golf courses that are considered golden era golf courses, you know, that are tree-lined, you know, the majority of those golf courses didn't have a tree on them when they were built. I've gone to a number of golf courses, and, you know, the charge has been, I want you to restore the golf course. And I'm like, well, I'm not so sure that's possible because if that's the case, then we just have to start bringing the logging trucks in because we're going to take out all the trees. And they're like, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, well, then you're really not restoring you're, you're renovating and you're, you're just uh, working with, with the pilot that you have. Um, so um, I don't know if it's a totally new dynamic about being open. I, I will say, uh, in my mind open is far better than, you know, tree line corridors on both sides of the whole, you know, tight, Tight corridors to me is a kiss of death. I, I like I like more open, expanse golf courses or, or or bigger fairways because I think it provides more options and opportunities. I think options create interest. So uh, um, I think I think that's certainly preferred, given the opportunity. I remember playing with Dean Beeman many many years ago with arguably Ireland's greatest amateur golfer, Joe Carr, and uh, Joe Carr had come to the States, and we played the Players Club at Sawgrass. I heard words I'd never heard before about a third or fourth hole because I quickly came to the realization that <laughs> Joe Carr, in his infinite wisdom and great, great playing as an amateur at the highest level, had played a career of golf on basically treeless golf course golf courses. And um, you know, he like he was the kind of guy that could sling it out there and turn it over and you know and, and get the roll out of it. And um, and I found that to be very interesting. And I, I I look at today and I'm like, you know, given the opportunity, you know, the site dictates so much about about what you're gonna do on a golf course. Um, I'm actually driving right now down to a project we're getting ready to start in the next couple of weeks in South Florida, down in Hope Sound, and uh, it's on an old citrus grove. Uh, so it's pretty flat. So this would
0: be Basically, a new course.
1: Yeah, it's, it is a new course, which is okay. kind of rare. Like mm-hmm. like like they need more new golf courses in South Florida, but <laughs> this is a great opportunity because they need, um, they need
0: new good ones.
1: Yeah, we need. There's always room for good golf courses. And great golf courses. But um it's a flat golf course and basically um you know, it's an old citrus grove. So we have a pretty open pallet. So, you know, it's gonna be a fairly open, windswept type golf course with pretty pretty wide corridors and um uh, um I think it's it's gonna be a great opportunity and we're we're really excited about it. And even on renovations that we're doing. You know, we. Uh, I think the norm is to take out more trees and to try to open up these corridors a little bit more because it's better. It's better from a agronomic standpoint. It's better from a maintenance standpoint. I think it's better from a playability because I think it does create interest and options. And um, I, I think that's. I think that's part of what's going to make the game more fun and interesting. But um, yeah, all of those things that you mentioned. I'm not saying they're new dynamics because you go back and look at some of the George Thomas golf courses out on the West Coast. You know they um, they did bunkers a little differently, and all of a sudden you see you see today you see a lot of guys doing the chunking of the bunkers and creating a little more ruggedness ruggedness of the of the bunkering, and of and of course the strategy is probably. It's probably the biggest thing that we're dealing with today, you know, but, you know, it's no different. It's no different than what the architects of the golden era were dealing with because they were, they were in the midst of the golf ball changing from the Haskell to the modern ball, from the, uh, wood shaft to the steel shafts in the late twenties. And, um, I saw a cartoon, I saw a cartoon from the British Isles where they had put a bunker they had put wheels under a bunker so they could roll the bunker around to accommodate, you know, some of the uh, some of the new some of the new technology in the game. So, you know, what we're dealing with today is is not totally new. I mean, you know, every generation has has dealt with it. Uh, again, I think that's what's so exciting.
0: Speaking of Pete Dye, it always struck me that he was maybe more than anybody of his generation. He knew when he would get a job that it was many times it was likely that tour pros were going to be playing an event on his course. Uh, Most architects don't know that they might build uh, features in or lengthen to potentially accommodate that. But he knew many times that, that his golf course was going to be the, the playing grounds for tournaments. So that must've influenced the way he designed. Do you think that knowledge, did that hinder his creativity or, or put him in a box?
1: Not at all. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, I learned so much from Pete. Being around him for, you know, for 40 years now, we we've been connected. And um, you know, early on, he he wanted to know before he built a golf course, he wanted to know who was gonna who he was building the golf course for, who who was gonna play the golf course. I mean, I think that's I think that's a imperative point to to understand, to discuss, and to flush out. As best you can, on the front end, you know, what, uh, determining what kind of golf course you're going to build. Uh, no, I don't think that's putting you in a box. I, I think that's just pushing the envelope, figuring out ways to further challenge these tour players. And, and Pete, Pete was an accomplished amateur, and he has always been able to understand and grasp better than anybody else in the modern era. And I think that propelled him to be the, the, the modern day. Greatest architect, and 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 as a result, he was always able to get in the minds and the heads of these tour players and and come up with ways to to challenge them to the highest level. You know, using deception, using illusion. Those are some of the only tricks we have in our tool bag today. But he was able to figure out how to do that better than anybody. And a lot of people have tried to copy him, but uh, nobody's been able to succeed the level that he was able to match uh, the physical aspects and the mental components and put them both in, a, in, in some balance to, to challenge the, the best golfers. And, um, and and I think that's that's what we need to be doing more of today. We, we need to find a little better balance between the, the physical aspect, uh, the physical abilities of these players, and then and, and, – make sure that we can also challenge them from a mental agility component
0: one of your recent projects was a remodel of the medalist club down in south florida which was an original pete Dye and greg norman collaboration and then it had been renovated after it opened and and you and and chris Monty recently were down there <clears throat> can you describe the work you did there because this ties into our conversation about having to build a golf course that that challenges great players mentally and physically, because so many of their members are tour players and, and really advanced players. So what, what was your trick? What did you come up with on at the Medalist to check off all the boxes of what a great modern golf course needs to be in that type of setting?
1: Well, it was uh, it was a great assignment uh, because I remember playing the golf course after it first opened. And I was down there some a little bit during construction. Not much, but uh, I visited the site a few times during construction. Then I played the golf course in its infancy, and uh, they opened the golf course in 1995 with a shell match between Greg Norman and, and uh, Nicky Price uh, when they were both kind of back and forth as a number one golfer in the world, and certainly playing at the highest level. It was a very demanding golf course. It opened as a very demanding golf course and uh, and very natural, very uh, very flat, Piece of property, great vegetation, uh, and, and really a, a good site. Uh, although it had a lot of wetlands on it, uh, but he did a marvelous job of routing the golf course, and and had design and player input from from Greg Norman along the way, which which really was um, was Greg's one of Greg's early attempts at getting involved in design, and then obviously went on to have a very successful design career and continues to do so. and surrounded himself with with great folks as well uh, that's kind of where we we knew that we were we were going to have to be a little more creative in, in going back in there because the golf club had 20 25 touring pros as members uh, both um, pga tour members uh, web.com players lpga stacy lewis played out of there a lot of others so uh, a lot of very high-profile players and accomplished golfers and, and professional golfers were playing there. So we knew we knew it was going to be a challenge. And, you know, short of succumbing to length being the determining factor, which, frankly, is not something I want to do, chasing the almighty yardage, we, we, did, we did fetch out the golf course. But at the same time, we were able to build in some half-bar holes I think half par holes are probably the best holes in golf, and by that you have uh, a good mix. You have some, you stretch out some par threes to where they're they're very lengthy, and you have some par fours that are maybe shorter and, and more playable. Maybe some even drivable, uh, which may become a par three and a half to some players, and thus the thus the half par uh, term that comes into play. And uh, same with par five. So uh, while we have Pretty. We don't really have any rough on the golf course, and um, the bunkers are not really that deep. Uh, I don't, we are, we probably have two bunkers that are more than four and a half feet deep. Majority of the bunkers are in that in that range or less. And um, um, is it because wide,
0: you you can't dig bunkers too deep in that part of Florida, or what's the thought No. I mean,
1: no. I mean, it was a conscious decision to put the greens back on the ground, try to keep the greens back down on the ground. Uh, where they were initially built and initially they had sidewall bunkers so we were able to come back in and put the sidewall bunkers in so we had a little verticality uh, associated with the uh, with the sidewall bunkers that became an integral feature because that's what they were in the very beginning and we were able to kind of become a little more creative and and put those back in albeit synthetic material they they're they're very natural looking, and I, I think you'll see more of them because uh-huh. the the level of maintenance is minimal. Um, so uh, I think I think that's a good component from a agronomic maintenance standpoint and cost overall cost. But the fairways were wide. We had really no rough, so the ball could actually run through the fairways and firm and fast. I think is what you know is one thing that we tried to accomplish and. Um, um, Jason Jobson is the superintendent and I, I think he, I think he understands that and, um, and maintains the golf course as, as, firm as he possibly can. You know, we put all the greens back down on the ground and, um, you know, uh, yeah, we did build some tiger tees. We, we consulted with tiger and, uh, got his permission to, to go build some tiger tees. So, you know, the golf course, we can fish the golf course out to 7,600 yards. But, you know, playing firm and fast and, and being a little more strategic and debunkering, and um, I'm, I'm, we're never wanting to take the driver out of the hand. I think that's why those guys enjoy playing the golf course so much because it, it really doesn't beat you up. It's all right in front of you, and those guys like to hit drivers. And believe it or not, uh, I dare say you take a survey of how many drivers these these guys are hitting on tour today – and they're probably not hitting a driver more than six times around, uh, maybe seven times. But they're so long until you know they run out of they run out of area. So we we like to continue. I don't want to take the driver out of their hands, and we try not to at the Um, uh, But we did tighten some of the landing areas up a little bit more, creating a bit more of a triangle effect, to where the widest part of the triangle, you know, accommodates the um, the guys that don't hit it as far and accommodates the higher handicappers. And then the tip of the triangle, you know, gets a little tighter for, for the longest for the longest players. And, you know, just adjusting the bunkers out for the modern game is, is something that we've paid a lot of attention to. You know, getting those bunkers out there at 300 to 350 yards, you know, it did not affect the average golfer or the senior golfer. But at the highest level, uh, it gets their attention. But you haven't taken it out of their hand. You've just given them a choice. I think, I think that's, I think that's extremely important. And the shortcut being around the greens and some movement, you know, I think, I think there's as much thought that's going into the green surrounds as in the greens themselves today. I think is something that's been overlooked that we're trying to place a little more emphasis on because when these players miss these greens, you know, uh, the regular golfers, the members are, are golfers, not going to pull out their putter. And, and that's really a, that's really the right play. But, you know, with the tour players, as, as good as they are, what you've done is you've introduced options to them. And as a result, you've brought back in some of the mental aspects of the game because now they have a choice. You give a tour player choices, they have to make a decision. And if they don't get it up and down, you know, you, you mentally got them for a minute and they have to, you know, get rid of those thoughts and go to the next tee and be mentally tough, put that behind them. Okay. So they made the wrong call. They, they, they use the wrong club selection. They didn't get it up and down. Um, and, and that wears on them a little bit. So mentally, that's what I keep going back to. So we were able to, we were able to, uh, reintroduce some of that at the, at the medalist. And, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strikingly beautiful golf course, and um, it's got a lot of contrast with no rough because of the, of the bunkers and the, uh, and the fact that the ball can run through the shortcut out into the native areas, uh, which are you know, sand and pine straw and, and native indigenous uh, plant material, which is, uh, which is really nice in that particular area, kind of like a sand belt region. And I think it was rated and sloped as maybe one of the hardest golf courses in the United States, which to me was a bit surprising due to the fact that we had no rough. We had pretty wide fairways and the bunkers were not overwhelming, you know, in in depth. So um, uh, we learned a lot. So now we're trying to take that to the next level because, I was at Kiowa. I was at Kiowa at the ocean course a while back and I asked my caddy, I'm like, How often do tour players come out and play uh the ocean course at Kiowa? and he and they're like, We hardly ever see anybody. The only time they show up is when they're preparing for a, a major event that's being held on the ocean course. The golf course is so hard that even the tour players don't go there unless, you know, they're preparing for an event. It's a wonderful, just a wonderful golf course and you know there again the challenge the challenge is is to get the higher handicappers around and um uh, I think Pete did a good job of that but boy, I tell you when you go all the way back and you put some mm-hmm. wind out there it can be it can be pretty brutal so um that was an interesting comment uh as well
0: yeah and and going back to your uh, your shaping around the greens where you're shaping off the shoulders and uh, creating low close cut areas around the green uh, that's always been uh something that you prefer to do right
1: yeah, I think I probably did it early on um, back in late 1990 when I redid uh, when we redid River Highlands up in uh, Connecticut uh, and turned it into a TPC where they play now. They play the Travelers, and we did that early on up there, and it seemed to it seemed to really take and catch on, and uh, I think uh, a lot of folks uh, started doing that. Not that we were the first ones to do it by any means uh we just we just took it to a to another level and and brought more bent grass, more shortcut bent grass around the greens to, to provide some of those options and it really works. I mean, you look at the uh you look at today's shot link data on the PJ Tour, which is proprietary information, and those guys probably those tour players may have as good a percentage out of the bunkers as they do or maybe better in some cases. Than they do from pitching and shipping in shortcut areas again because you go in the bunker they're typically taking a 60 degree wedge in there they, there is no real decision and uh, when they get in those shortcut areas you know they have multiple options and um, therein lies the uh, the the mental side that keeps coming back into play as I said earlier you give those guys options they have to make a decision they don't always make the the uh, proper decision, uh, although they're the best at getting it up and down than, than anybody. I mean, it seems to me like the tour players today are, are working on three things they're working on their driver, they're working on the putter, and they're working on distance control because more often than not, they're hitting most everything from within 150 yards now. Um, it's a little surprising to me that Dustin Johnson made a comment a couple months ago that the longest club he hit into a bar four this year was a six iron yeah i think something i think something's wrong with that i mean i i really want these guys to hit all their clubs in the bag i hit all the clubs in my bag i know that and mm-hmm. um i'm hitting i'm hitting long irons and hybrids into some par fours and and i'm like you know so what does it take for them to hit team clubs and i'm hitting into these par fours well i'll tell you what it takes a 550 to 575 yards par four to do that. When you think about a drive, let's just say a drive of 325 and, you know, you, you see these guys hitting the six irons from, you know, 215 to 225. So all of a sudden, you know, you hit six iron, you know, two, 215 to 225, and you hit a tee shot 225, 235. Well, there's 550 yards and they've only hit a bit iron into it so what does that tell you
0: yeah i mean it, it just tells you you're going to have to if you if that's your desire you're just going to have to build longer and longer golf courses there's
1: no you, you got to find a stream
0: you, you got to find a power i think way. i think
1: adding another par 3 probably helps I, i'm not sure i'm not sure par for these guys today for the tour players at the highest level is about 67 Par sixty-seven yeah. or Par sixty-eight yeah. for these guys today, because you know the you know you take away take away a par five or you take away two par fives, you basically take away you know um, a lot of eight shots, and and you add another par three in there, and then you still you still want to have room for some half par holes. That helps keep the yardage down a little bit. There's no question. I mean, if you want to design today for just the tour player. Uh, you, you really you really could be 8,000 yards or a little bit longer. You know, it's a combination of, of so many factors that are out there today. And the guys on the Web.com tour, the majority of them, are playing and hitting the ball longer than the tour players. Uh, you know, when Davis Love when Davis Love came out on the PGA Tour, he was so long. He was yeah. so, so, so long coming out of college. I played with him. And, um,
0: I used uh, to you say know, people hit... would, on the... Driving range, would stop just because of the sound of his of the ball launching off his driver. You could hear it.
1: Oh, it was amazing the where he hit the ball. Uh, I know we were at Long Cove. We were finishing up Long Cove on Hilton Head Island, and Jim Faree was a great tour player, arguably one of the better ball strikers of all time, and and, and Jack Nicholas said so as well. And, and Jim went to North Carolina. Davis went to North Carolina. and Jim was a good friends with Bob. Uh, Davis's father, Davis Long Jr., and uh, they, they came and played long Cove, and Pete and I were just astonished at where Davis was hitting, the, hitting his tee ball. It was just, you know, he just totally undressed the golf course, and it was a brand new golf course, and uh, uh, you know, we started building new tee shortly thereafter. But then Davis got on the tour and really did become the accomplished Hall of Fame golfer until he dialed back a little bit, but these, these kids today, they're fearless and uh, they're not, they're not holding back. They, they eventually will dial back a little bit, but i tell you, um, uh, it's, it's frightening to see, you know, if you're building a golf course just for those tour players, what's going to go into to doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're going to have to, we're going to have to sharpen our tools as architects, you know, for, for those guys, But at the same time, as I said early on, you can't let them drive the game because they're less than one percent. I mean, the majority of golfers are in the are between ages fifty and seventy five. That's the majority of golfers today, uh, from a demographic standpoint. So, you know, you got to be careful.
0: You can't be building almost everybody. Yeah, it's an academic exercise for almost every single person in the world. Uh, But it sounds like you're glad you don't have your old job when you were the designer for the PGA Tour, because then you would have to think about this a lot more frequently than you probably do.
1: Well, I do. I mean, I'm still working with the tour. I still have a number of tour courses. Um, I mean, we were recently involved up at River Highlands, and uh, we're now out in Vegas uh, doing some work on on a course I did. It's a TPC that hosts the... uh, a host a tour event in vegas and uh, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's important i think it's it, it really it, it really stimulates me to understand and try to figure out how to challenge those guys but at the same time as uh as my friend fuzzy zeller always said hey we're on scholarship you know we don't pay to play you know, you got these members that are paying dues and, and and being assessed for all these golf course improvements. And, you know, we come in, we come in one week a year and we're all on scholarship. And, um, and that's very important to understand because, uh, you, you, you gotta be, there's a balance there and, and we gotta be very careful. And at the end of the day, we really do need to be focused on building fun and interesting golf courses. But, the ultimate challenge is to provide a challenge for these tour players, but accommodate the folks that are paying to play the game and paying for these golf courses. And therein lies the biggest challenge, but being cognizant of that and, and trying to whittle away and figure out ways to, you know, to challenge all levels of golfers. That's what is so stimulating to me and, and to, uh, and to Chris today, Chris and I, Chris and I are constantly uh and, and we have some really great conversation about you know where we're going and, and what we're trying to do and 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 it's that kind of stimulation that I think is 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 so so exciting.
0: You've had some some really nice properties to work with over the years, I mean, maybe not on the level of abandoned dunes or sand valley or that type of thing, but that's Spanish Oaks outside Austin and Old Farm in Southern Virginia and some nice restoration properties in North Carolina, Even the even the Deltona Club down outside of Orlando is a really fun property. But you've also designed golf courses on some pretty flat uh, terrain you mentioned you're doing one in Hobie Sound I'm about to get started on that but and one of the most underrated courses that i I'm familiar with that you did was the Slammer and the Squire at World Golf Village outside of saint augustine i mean it's a really really strong golf course that doesn't probably get enough attention that it deserves, and it's on a terrible site i mean there's just really nothing there and some wetlands and um but not much to work with talk about that briefly, that project creating that, and um, is it a higher accomplishment to create a course like that when you've got nothing to work with than it is to build a course when you have beautiful features in the land that suggest holes and there's already a compelling character to the site?
1: I don't think there's any question. There are a lot of sleepless nights uh, associated with that project, Derek, because, you know, they were going to it was going to be the home for the World Golf Village and uh, the Hall of Fame. So it was destined to get a lot of uh, exposure there in St. Augustine and, and dealing with, um, you know, the, the legends and national treasures that were associated with putting their names on those two golf courses, Slammer and the Squire being with Sam Sneed and Gene Sarazen, and the King and the Bear collaboration between Jack and Arnold. I mean, that was... Uh, it was tough because the site was the site really had its challenges. The soil was not, the soil was not the best. The topo was almost non-existent. There were a lot of wetlands and it was, uh, the site had already been permitted and my charge, (laughs) my direction was do not trigger a modification to the permits that are in hand. So you talk about, you talk about a set of handcuffs. We were, extremely handcuffed uh it was difficult the vegetation was was really just uh north florida pine and uh, not a lot of trees were worth saving or preserving so um it was it was quite a challenge and uh you know we uh somehow we got through it and uh, we had a great uh the uh the owner at the time was scratch golf jim mclaughlin and billy palmer you know i've always said good golf courses and great golf courses start with a great owner. Uh, you need, you need a great site, but boy, I'll tell you, um, you, you really, you really want a good, you really want a good owner. They go hand in hand. So we were blessed with a good owner and also had the backing of the PGA tour and all of the other allied associations affiliated with the, uh, Royal Golf Village and Hall of Fame, but we didn't have a great site. That was really challenging in every respect, but, um, uh, we persevered and were able to build good golf holes. I think Jerry, yeah, Jerry Pate was uh, was a player consultant. He had he had a hand uh, as well. He brought some good input to the to the site. But um, I don't know. We um, we made it through it and uh, we rubbed on that. We rubbed on all that old mud and buck and found some sand here and there. And uh, it's it's a very well conditioned golf course to this day from a design standpoint. You know, it was a flat golf course, so we didn't try to, we didn't try to turn it into a mountain golf course. We, we knew, we knew we had to have lakes and uh, we knew we had required to have retention. We knew we had to protect the wetlands. And at the same time, uh, we just tried to stay with a, uh, a fairly native palette of uh, North Florida landscape. I don't know. It's, uh, you know, maintenance complements design, and design complements maintenance, and they do a good job with the maintenance and operations, and uh, the design has held up. We just redid the bunkers uh last year, really for the first time since we uh opened the golf course in the late 90s, so uh, I've spent some time out there. I've spent some time out there recently, and, uh, you know, it's just good. I think it's some there's some good sound design, and there's some good half-bar holes out there, and there's good balance with left to right and right to left holes, and
0: yeah, there's a uh, tremendous amount of variety. the The green complexes are all different; they're oriented yeah. differently. There's great bunkering, uh, lots of uh, places to have to get up and down from, and there's one, one thing going back recently. I w- was surprised to notice how much movement in the fairways there were. You can get a lot of yeah. different um, unlevel stances, um, and just to get that kind of variety out of a, a really a terrible golf site is is pretty amazing. <laughs>
1: It was. It was not the best. That's for sure. I, I don't yeah. think I've ever seen more poisonous snakes, <laughs> or, or uh, than, than than anywhere else. I mean, between the between the snakes, between the wild hogs, and stepping in a yellow jacket nest. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was pretty treacherous in, in a lot of respects. I have I have a lot of memories, and not all of them are fond. That was a that was a tough sight in many respects.
0: Well, on the other side of it, do you get do you ever come across projects that you become emotionally attached to in a positive way? Uh, things that that stay with you or inspire you for for certain reasons. And if so, what what are one or two of those?
1: Well, I think they go right back to the, the two most important items: having a good owner and having an involved owner, and uh, and then the site itself are probably the the two biggest most compelling components. Um, that uh, conjure up memories. I'm finishing up renovating a course up in New Jersey outside of Princeton right now, and um, I've been going up there every week for two and three days, shaping. What course is that? Right now it's called Green Acres Country Club outside of Princeton, Mm -hmm. New Jersey, and it's a repurposing project where where there's a tremendous amount of gratification involved in that um, we were able to go up there and take a club that was somewhat riddled with debt and really struggling and and really not competitive in the marketplace and we were able to go in and enact our repurposing model which is something that we we're doing more of probably have done more than anybody in the country and we're going in and um, creating a we're creating a, a parcel uh, of developable property that um, can be rezoned and re and creating an infill development parcel within the golf course and carving it out and and selling it uh, to a developer, and then having to often having to reroute a couple of golf holes to, to make this development parcel fit in without compromising the golf course. And we're, uh, We've successfully done that, and we just sold the parcel, closed on it to a national home builder. It's gonna build 98 townhomes, and with each one of those comes a social membership. So it's, it's allowed the club to completely renovate the entire golf course retire all their debt, and still maintain ownership of the club and have money to put in the capital reserves and maybe even do some upgrades to the clubhouse. And now it's, it's going to make them competitive in the marketplace. And that's about as rewarding a project as you can find in the renovation world to where we've come in and, and, and really solidified and, and put a course back on good standing whereas they can maintain ownership and control of the club themselves. And, and now that they are going to be competitive in the marketplace, we've impacted in a very positive fashion the business side, as well as accomplishing what we want for both today's member and tomorrow's member. And um, I think we all need to be building and renovating these golf courses today for tomorrow's member. Tomorrow's member is a lot different than today's member. So I like in my crystal ball. I I think that's extremely important. It's making a demonstrable improvement both to uh, what we're doing uh, and how we're impacting the business side of golf, as well as doing our job of renovating and updating some of these older golf courses because there's a huge inventory out there that is going is going to have to have some mechanism to to maintain their status and and be functional and operational uh, from a business standpoint so um and I've been up there all summer going back and forth we're finishing up the last couple of green complexes and I'm almost sad because I don't have I'm not going to be able to go up there and be creative and, and shape any more features. I've got to, I've got to now finish them. Like Pete always says, one of the saddest days is when we have to seed the greens or grass the grains because you can't rub on them anymore.
0: And, that's and, right. But at, yeah. the, but
1: at the end of the day, you know that's that's our charge. I mean, that's what we're there for. We're there to finish the golf course. And uh, yeah,
0: you got to um, cut it off at. You some always,
1: point. yeah, exactly. You always feel like the more you rub on it, the better it gets. Mm-hmm. And um, you, gotta, you got You You have to have that that mentality. And um, you know, I'm up there rubbing on it. Chris is up there saying, "We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to keep <laughs> moving." So uh, it's, um, you know, it's a lot of fun as well. I mean, it, it, you know, the hours that we put in to what we do, uh, you just you couldn't do it unless you were enjoying it at the highest level. And that, um, you know, the challenge going in and doing these repurposing jobs, the challenge of going in and renovating these jobs and and spending, as queer as it sounds, you know, we're, we're spending people's money like it's coming out of our own pocket. We're continuously value engineering these uh, these projects on behalf of the owner because, you know, they're entrusting us with millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, we're, we're out there trying to do our job and we're out there trying to spend their money like it's coming out of our pockets. And I think mm-hmm. they appreciate that as well.
0: Well, on, on the bright side, the silver lining for the New Jersey project is, after what that's done, you may not have to get on an airplane anymore. You can drive up and down I ninety five for a while.
1: <laughs> well, for a while, but we we still have projects going around the country, and so um, uh, I don't. I, I think I'll still be getting a few frequent flyer miles. It's it's not quite the badge of honor no. that uh, that I, that I desire, but uh, you know, just well, you're it back. You're back on the territory. you're
0: back on the equipment again. So that's you can always have that to look forward to. That's
1: good. Exactly.
0: To hear. exactly. Uh, uh, I want to switch gears uh, as we uh, get you out of here, Bobby. Um, I just I just found out recently. I did not know this about you, but you and your wife have a daughter who's been severely afflicted by uh, autism, and you started a, a foundation to help uh, families and children with uh, who have um, autistic people in their lives. It's called Heal, uh, Helping. Uh, enrich autistic lives, and I wonder if you could just talk for a minute about the challenge of being a parent in that position and the effect it's had on you personally.
1: Well, it's uh, it's changed our life in so many ways. I mean, you know, most people only know you from your business and your profession of what you do, but you know, we all have families, and uh, we were we were thrown a curveball, and uh, and we now successfully negotiated it. And, um, the way we dealt with it was to, um, create a foundation. Uh, we have a, now she's, uh, we have a 19 year old autistic daughter, Lanier, who has really changed her life and is changing a a lot of folks, a lot of families, uh, in a very positive way. Um, autism is, is something that, um, has grown to epic proportions. Um, and um and, and, and it's still a arguable uh, topic uh, of what's causing it. But um, you know, the way we've dealt with it is we knew as much as we were struggling early on that um, um that a lot of families were struggling. So we started a five oh one C three not for profit foundation and and we were we've been fortunate that the PGA Tour who I worked with for thirteen years you know the what they do for charity is well documented, and 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 it's, it is so important uh, for everybody associated with the PGA Tour. They they adopted our charity and uh, locally and um, through the Players Club at, at Sawgrass. Um, we um, we operate in North Florida. Uh, all the money we raise, we raised uh, over two million dollars, and um, um, that money stays in North Florida. Um, and goes to help create awareness we're an outreach we're really an outreach organization in, in such a way that we can um, we, we, we put on summer camps uh, we have seminars we have education we're putting iPads uh, we're putting in iPads in all the public schools because these iPads are, are great learning tools uh, Um, Our daughter is nonverbal, and um, she is now able to communicate via her iPad. And what we have determined is, you know, we have an incredibly intelligent daughter that we were not aware of. And um, so um, that's another initiative. We also uh, are are, uh, producing uh, and raising service dogs to give to these children. Uh, We couldn't take our daughter. We couldn't go for a walk. We couldn't go to the mailbox with our daughter. And now we can, now we're able to go on beach walks and, um, uh, with the, with the uh, assistance of a service dog. So, uh, we're big into service dogs as well as these iPad programs and all the awareness programs, uh, that, that take place during the summer because, um, uh, uh, these, these kids are, and, and young adults are, are so misunderstood. Uh, they're they're trapped in their body, and uh, so many of them are extremely extremely intelligent. So it, it's been very gratifying. It's been very gratifying for 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 my wife Leslie and myself, and um, and our family, and, uh, to get all the support that we that we have in the community and uh, from the PGA Tour, from the Tournament Players Club at Sawgrass and all the other organizations that are that are affiliated and are so giving uh of their of their of their charitable donations and we're able to keep it keep it in north florida um in, in a five county area basically so and there's a there's a number of tour players ernie ernie uh ernie else uh, has a great facility down here in south florida as well and uh there there's you know the pga tour is a is, is in many ways an outreach organization as well so uh it's it's been it's been good it's been good for us it's been it's been uh, a, a tremendous challenge um and uh this is our way of of dealing with it i think in, in many ways um we're just we're just blessed to be able to you know to assist and help others and um uh, we were very private about it early on for many 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 years. We just kind of circled the wagons and uh, hunkered down and and you know we were dealing with it as best we could and um uh, and it was tough and to to be able to create a a foundation and to and to to go out and to and to reach out and to create this awareness education and provide these seminars and provide these summer camps is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more than just golf. Um, uh, so, uh, it's been good for us.
0: Yeah. I can um, not imagine how heartwarming and emotional it, it must've been when you were finally able to communicate in a, in a new way with your daughter yeah, because of uh, tablets and, and iPads and uh, this technology that wasn't available always.
1: No question. No question about it. So, but thank you for asking It's. Uh, it's close and dear um, to uh, to my heart, and and uh, and my wife Leslie, who is just you know I've, I've seen a side that I didn't know existed, and uh, you know there's just no end that you will go as a parent to to try to help out your your child or your children. I mean that's 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 what we're here. That's what we're here for, and um, um and and it's been it's been really it's been really good. It's you know it's a it's, it's quite a balance, you know, when you, when you, when you're trying to balance a career and at the same time, you get the curve balls thrown at you and, um, you know, you just figure it out, you, you know, you deal with it. Um, you know, you try to, you try to, you know, turn adversity into something that's, that's positive and that, you know, if you can, if you can benefit others and help others, you know, they always tell my children, there are two kinds of people, they're givers and they're takers. And, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of gratification as a giver.
0: Well, Bobby, I think we should leave it right there. That's a good note to end on. Um, once again, uh, the organization is called HEAL, H-E-A-L, Helping Enrich Autistic Lives. Please go to the website. It's Org. Bobby, best of luck to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. It was, it was nice to talk to you and, and, and catch up and um, kind of pick your brain and get your insights into golf course architecture and design. Uh, and I, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks, Derek. You're a great guy and you do a great job. And uh, You're obviously passionate about, about what you do and, uh, and very thorough, so thank you for that as well.
0: No problem. I just look forward to getting out and playing more of your golf courses. They're such a blast. Uh, The podcast is called Feed the Ball because I love the idea of golf balls funneling around greens and having to use slopes, and your green complexes are some of the best in the business. So once again, thanks and best of luck.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate
0: it. That was Bobby Weed, someone who's doing great work on the golf course and really more important work off the golf course. He's a thoughtful guy, as you can tell. Uh, thoughtful designer, and he's got a lot of ideas about golf course architecture. I think uh, his passion for building golf courses and shaping greens and green surrounds himself on the equipment, uh, I think that really came through in our, in our conversation. One thing I didn't get to ask him about was uh, his background. Bobby grew up in South Carolina, and uh, is, is it is it just me or does he kind of sound like Nick Saban when he talks a little bit? But um, he grew up in South Carolina. His grandparents farmed. His father was in the construction business. And a story he likes to tell is uh, when he was in his teens, he talked his father into letting him use some land that they owned adjacent to a golf course. Bobby took it upon himself to get on a tractor and, and build a driving range. and He had some help from his father, but he completed the driving range more or less by himself, and uh, all through his teenage years, he operated it. I think that driving range is still there. The other thing that was clear from our conversation was his admiration and and love and respect for his mentor, Pete Dye, someone who's helped so many other uh, significant architects get into the business. People like Tom Doak, Bill Coor, Rod Whitman, Tim Liddy, Brian Curley, Lee Schmidt, Jason McCoy, and and many others all started their careers or had had portions of their early careers on Pete Dye's construction crews. And the belief that golf courses are built in the field by hand still permeates through all those guys, including Bobby. When you play his courses, that's one impression that comes through clearly, is that each feature, each green, each detail is really made by hand. There's a lot of care and craft put into it. Uh, There's never a sense that big machinery was used, nothing's rough, everything flows together. It's very artistically done, and there's a boldness and a point of view to his golf courses, too, that that I think really comes through. The green and green surrounds are always highly shaped, and there's a lot of different ways to play shots into the contoured greens and and different ways to get the ball to feed to the hole. The only thing missing in their portfolio is really that one great property, that coastal setting, the site in the rolling sandy dunes somewhere, the kind of place that would get the golf world and the golf media to stand up and take notice. If they ever get a site like that, I know they'd kill it. Uh, Hopefully they, they get a chance to do that someday. Keep checking in to FeedTheBall.com for upcoming episodes. Also look at TheDuncanList.com for candid golf course reviews and other features. Please subscribe to the Feed the Ball podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today and joining us. I'm Derek Duncan, and look forward to the next time.